For November 2nd, 2016, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Counting sheep when you're trying to sleep. Being fair when there's something to share. Being neat when you're folding a sheet. That's mathematics when a ball bounces off of a wall when you cook. From a recipe book when you know how much money you owe. That's mathematics. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Advanced mathematics and computer simulations are now making it possible to answer questions that were once too complex or difficult to accurately model. Important questions about the future of the U.S. power grid, like how much renewable energy it can really generate at an acceptable price, or how dispatch constraints might dictate how much of each type of power it can use are now, to some degree, answerable. And some of the results are quite surprising. By integrating very large historical data sets on the weather, thousands of power plants, the transmission grid, the use patterns of customers, and even the changing climate, we're now able to peer into the future farther than ever before and get a much better idea of what's really feasible, affordable, and desirable. In this episode, we speak with Christopher Clack, a mathematician and physicist who recently developed such a simulator while he was working at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration here in Boulder, Colorado. His insights on how the grid of the future might actually function are fascinating and will likely shatter some of your pre-existing beliefs. And this interview contains a few nuggets for the serious math geeks out there. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Christopher, to the Energy Transition Show. Uh, thank you. I guess I should mention that we're actually taping this in person over pints of good microbrew, IPAs, to be precise. Um, the only other time I've actually done that was with Mason Inman's interview on episode 13, and that went very long indeed. So, listeners forewarned, <laughs> we're going to have a few pints wow. and do maybe like the podcast equivalent of Drunk History, which is a show that I just love. Yes, yeah, beautiful. That's beautiful br time. brilliant. All right. As a mathematician who recently worked on modeling the interaction of climate and renewable energy over at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, you have a pretty unique point of view. So I'd like to start with some of your modeling work in that area. First, let's talk about your National Energy with Weather System simulator known by its acronym NEWS. How does that simulator work and how can it be used? So, yeah, thank you. Um, I basically went to work on this model that became NEWS from a standpoint of I want to be agnostic about the grid, about what goes on the grid. I don't want to have a preference in technology. I also want the model to be able to find me the least cost system. So I want cheap energy for people. And I wanted to be able to represent the generators properly, including wind and solar. So what I mean by that is I wanted to make a model that had a lot of granularity for the wind and solar. 
and use real data for that so that we can really see what happens when wind and solar is put into grids. And what I wanted to be able to do was build it from the ground up so that I could do very large scale, so national national continental scale type grids, all the way down to utility sized grids, but at the same time be able to handle the operation of the grid and how it works. And so in its simplest form, what it does is it allows allows you to look at how the grid would evolve in the future under different scenarios, finding the least cost whilst also showing how the grid would be operated. So how the markets would work and how the different generators would interplay with each other. And so that then we as humans can look at that and see why these things are happening because we try and keep the assumptions to a minimum so that we can try and figure out what it's doing, why is it doing what it's doing and how does that enable us to transition our energy grid from from what we have now to what we're going to need in the future. So this simulator then incorporates a variety of data sets. You've got some weather data, you've got some data on the economics of uh, grid markets, and you've got some data on the uh, how these different power plants are dispatchable. Correct, and, yeah. I mean, that's really quite a lot of data that you're munching up in there. Yeah, so we've got the how people behave, so their demand profiles, so how much energy they're using. Okay, wow. Uh, then the conventional generators, you've got to have... So the, you've got like some ramping knowledge in there yes, somehow? Yes, ramping knowledge, how you know, the minimum on and off times for these bigger plants that cool. are needed. And then the backbone of it is a very high resolution weather data that allows you to look at you know, the transmission lines, as it gets hotter, they sag more, they are less efficient. Oh, wow, so the transmission physics are in there too. Yes, yeah. The frequency that you run the grid on, the the voltage control on the transmission grid. The really only thing that we don't have is a really detailed distribution grid representation. We just have a sort of an, an implicit version of that because you then start multiplying the number of power lines pretty fast and when we did a small subset that had it really fully explicitly done, we didn't see a very large change or almost no change at all to the big scale picture. But if you can run it with the full distribution grid in, but you can't run, say, a national scale with all that data because it's just too much data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I wouldn't imagine there's a ton of variability at the distribution grid anyway. I mean, uh, you know, you, you have certain limits or you, you don't want to blow a distribution transformer, but yeah. beyond that, like, you know. Well, the only reason we were considering putting it in there was just the rooftop solar for the, right. for the residential and, and things, how that interplays. But we decided that when we did it explicitly, the, the difference was so small that we, the amount of rooftop solar you can actually put in when you're looking at a country like the United States, is very small compared to the actual amount of power needed. Mm. And so it didn't really overly affect it. The reason I wanted to look at the distribution a little bit was electric vehicles and how they would interplay with the grid, pulling and pushing power. But we feel like if you go into the large scale, all that noise sort of disappears and it becomes a more aggregate thing anyway. But I, as a mathematician, would constantly see, know what's wrong with the model and want to improve it constantly striving to do that and that allows me to see insights into you know whether you need it or not so one of the the tricks of a mathematician is to know what you're missing but know what effect that bit that you're missing has on the grid and uh, we're not just on the grid but your equations that you're looking at and and hopefully able to explain to people that it doesn't matter as much as some people might think yeah just to be able to sort of rate the magnitude of the uncertainty yes exactly okay so what are some of the ways that this model can be used? Well, the simplest ways, and the first way that we used it was that we wanted to look at finding an optimal mix of generators and transmission and storage and demand response with energy efficiency 
to create the least cost solution of the grid. So sort of the base case scenario, of we just put the all the assumptions about the costs and everything and we work out what the cheapest grid would be. And then we can take that and see what what that looks like, what the disposition is of all the generators and, and everything. And then from that, we can then do sensitivities as well to that. So we could say, okay, well, we got an 80% reduction in carbon, but we want a 90% reduction. So we'll enforce that extra 10%. And what what does that sensitivity then tell us about how much more it would cost or what technologies we need to place in? So that's sort of the traditional thing. You, you do a baseline and you can do multiple sensitivities off that. The other thing is you can do not stochastic but you can do layered solutions so you can look at different sized grids so what you could say is you could say have something like say pacificor which is a, a grid in the western us that wants to connect with california iso for the eim market which is the energy imbalance market yeah and you can say well imagine that those two are separate in one scenario but you have an underlying scenario which is that they're connected together and how does the placement of generators change when you when you have the model understand that there could be a possible universe where you might be connected versus you might also be disconnected. And how does that change where you would select siting versus just one problem or the other? And so what I mean by that is you could do the traditional thing, which is Pacific Core does a plan and says, this is what we're going to put with our generators. And California does that without any knowledge of what Pacific Core has done. But then one day they decide we're going to connect together. And does that disrupt the generators that exist there now? And if it does, what difference does that make if you had thought about it ahead of time that there was, a, say, a 5% probability that these two things might happen? Can you hedge against retiring assets early? So that's one thing you can do. And another thing you can do is set the price of electricity and maximize something that you want to look at. So the traditional one is maximize renewable energy or maximize storage penetration for a region or you could also minimize, so you could minimize, say, sulfur dioxide emissions or water use in a particular place. So you can set the cost of electricity that you're happy with. And then rather than minimizing cost, you're saying this is the cost. And then we need to find out what's the most you can get onto the grid or the least you can mm. offtake off the grid, given that constraint. And so you can add policies in, you can add different disruptive technologies in. So one of the ways I like to use it is uh, you have these wacky new technologies coming out, for example, things like flying kites that will generate electricity. Try and model how they work, and then you can put it in and say, well, what cost do they need to get to to be a disruptive force within the grid? And you can do the same for uh, you know, electric vehicles. You can do the same for demand management and things like that. So you can plug and play, if you will, all these different scenarios within the same modeling framework. So you know the underlying model that's going in and you can then test all these different hypotheses and, and could, could you actually do that with different types of generators at once yes yeah so you can make multiple changes at the same time so you could say i've got these kites and i've also got wind turbines that are now 200 meters tall rather than 100 meters tall and we've got solar panels which are four times as efficient than they are today we've got csp which is you know really cheap and we've got natural gas that's got ccs attached to it and you can do all that at once and you can say okay well wow. if, if you had all those options which one would win or which one right. penetrates the grid the most or which one loses. But then the key to the model is it also tells you why it lost. So you'll be able to go in and see all the non-solutions and be able to say, okay, well, the the natural gas with CCS, for example, lost because it was 5% more expensive than, say, CCS, uh, sorry, than biomass with CCS or something like that. So you can see why it got competed out to give us an idea of how close we are so say if it was like one hundredth of one percent, then you could say, okay, well, there isn't really much of a difference between these technologies. And so let's do both. 
because they're equally effective. And could you adjust the sensitivity on that to say, well, don't let it compete something out if it's plus or minus 2% or... Yeah, so you can you can make the price endogenous, basically, and you can yeah. say, if you select this one, then the other one gets slightly more expensive or slightly cheaper, would you mm. replace it with that technology? And right, you can right. allow it to fight right. in some sense uh, within the model. Uh, that makes it solve... Uh, I don't want to get too geeky yet, but for it to for it to solve like that, you're you're making it um, be a harder problem. So that you, you would want to do that on say smaller grids, yeah, uh, rather than say a national. Uh, right, grid. right. You know, I, I hadn't really thought about the fact that you could use this model to model the operation of an energy imbalance market, or to model the way that these other utilities joining essentially the California ISO would actually work as a balancing mechanism. Yeah. Yeah, so the the core principle behind the model is it's blended capacity expansion production cost, which maybe a few of your listeners will, will know what they are. They're normally two ends of the spectrum of modeling types. I always believe that there's you know an infinite spectrum of models that you can build. They're all wrong. Sometimes my my former boss would say, "Don't say that they're wrong. Say that they're inaccurate," <laughs> uh, because people get turned <laughs> off by you saying it's wrong. But I like to point out that you know it is a model. It's not real life. And you're a plain spoken man, after yeah, all. Yeah, I am a plain spoken man, and and some people don't like that, but most people do like it because they know when I say something, I mean it. I'm a big fan. Uh, thank you. But the the point is, you can do these things together, which means you you necessarily remove a lot of the obstacles that you might need to connect models together and all these things, and you're using the same model framework and hardware for each of the different systems so you don't have all these extra complications for using different models that were built by different teams and different right places. right yeah but yeah you can look I've, at- I've heard just some horror stories about people trying to integrate those models coming yeah. from different systems and platforms and just i mean even just creating mutual interfaces is a horror show sometimes well this this is the way and i said it to someone i was once reviewing a panel and the thing that i said was the sum of the two is worse than each individually because you've got the worst components of each one coming right, together. Right. And that's not, I wasn't being harsh to them. That's just the fact of life. If you're connecting these things to communicate, you have to distill it down to its basic level of what you're communicating. And if one model is really poor on one thing and the other model is poor on something else, the combination will be poor on both. Right. Because you can't transmit the data between one and the other. Right. And that's kind of where I came from for the building the news model was, I wanted to have both integrated together so that you can look at what happens when you think about what you would do to dispatch whilst you're also thinking about what new generators or mm-hmm. transmission or storage that I'm going to build. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is super cool stuff. So one of the things that I think is super interesting about your simulator is the way that it can integrate this really large amount of weather data. Mm-hmm. Can you describe a little bit about how that aspect of the simulator works and just how much data we're talking about? And for that matter, how you deal with the computational requirements? Oh, it's very complicated. It's, it's very, <laughs> very, I mean, I don't know if I understand. No, I'm, I'm being facetious, of course. Uh, so we, uh, when I built it, my former boss, Sandy McDonald, really was interested in weather. He's a meteorologist and he really wanted weather data to be treated right. And basically, the, the NOAA and the National Weather Service use a thing called 3D variational analysis or four-dimensional variational analysis as well, which is a really complicated way of saying they blend models with observations and a lot of observations, tens of thousands of observations, to give us a very good picture of what the atmosphere looks like at that time across whatever domain you're looking at. So we were technically looking at almost all the time North America. So what what's going on in the atmosphere all the way through the 3D column? So we have plane data, we have satellite data, we have ground-based measurements. They all go in and we do this variational analysis. And what we find is then this 
3D matrix of information for the weather data. Then what we do is we take that raw data for a decade. So every hour this happens and we have this for 10 years. And then we put that through power algorithms for all the different technologies. So for wind turbines, how do they extract energy from the atmosphere? How does solar irradiance impact solar panels? And then we extract some salient features that are needed for the operation of the grid. So temperature affects how much demand you need because of air conditioning demand. So you need that. Wind speed affects how quickly your panels cool down on your roof, things like that. It also blows the the power lines. And so it affects that. So you've got these other uh, data points that come in. And what you do is you actually write that into binary because it's the simplest form for the computer to understand over these long periods hourly resolution for all the sites across the US. And because we write it into binary, it becomes very efficient for the computer to read because it's in the language it understands. And that's something that's very different straight away. And that also compresses the data heavily. And so when you do that, then you bring it in to the model and then it builds the model around that structure. So it builds the whole model into binary so that when it goes to the CPU to actually solve, it's not having to translate that. It's it's all in computer language straight from the... Yeah, it's using machine language yeah. or, or assembly or something. Yes, yeah, exactly. So yeah. to make it faster. And so we can read in in the model roughly 20 to 25 gigabytes of data in less than 30 seconds wow. into the random access memory. And then we have a way to tell the CPU and the cache information that it needs that's very important at that point so that the is the minimum amount of communication back and forth from the hardware. And that really stems from computers aren't getting any faster. They just throw more and more CPUs on the computer. And these types of problems, unfortunately, are much more suited to one very, very, very fast processor and a lot of memory versus many processors. You can change the problem, but then it leads you down a a rabbit hole of other issues. Mm. Um, But the the basic format of the problem is make it into a a language that's simple enough for the computer to be able to read directly and fast as possible. Otherwise, the amount of data you've got so large that you'll never... How much are we talking about here? uh, Petabytes or... So the the standard model we run is is of the order of one terabyte of RAM. Okay. So that's when it's actually processing. Yeah. So that works out to be, you know, 20 to 30 terabytes of data just in its raw form. Mm. Um, and then if you want to run it in dispatch mode, which means you're not doing the capacity expansion, you can go down to, to five minute resolution rather than hourly. And you're looking at 300 terabytes rather wow. than, rather than uh, so it's an order of magnitude bigger. Because of the way you're doing it, you then need to move to solid state hard drives, things like that, rather than RAM, because it just isn't machines big enough to... Yeah, you're not going to be doing this on a home PC. No, we. I, I'm making a model that you can run on your desktop, but obviously it's simplified in terms of the, the amount of data you can use. But it'll give you a broad brush example. But the problem behind it is we, we had to purchase, when I was working there, we had to purchase special hardware. And at home, I've uh, in my new business, I've built special hardware that's built around it, which has made it a lot faster because the specialist hardware I've built specifically for this one problem. And it's been illuminating to try and build. I feel like I'm turning into Apple. I'm building the hardware and the software, so it works. Yeah. Uh, but it really does make a big difference because yeah. it's very useless for other problems right. that require parallel processing. But for this specific problem, uh, devoid of me inventing a new way to do linear programming, um, which would uh, make me very, very rich, um, <laughs> it's just the way the problem is. And there's yeah. lots of ways you can approximate it, but I don't like approximating it for 
for reasons we might discuss later. Yeah, I think we will get to that. Okay, so you've come up with some really interesting findings from this simulator, and I'd like to talk about some of them for a minute. So first, you've modeled what the effect would be on the U.S. electric system if it were actually one 48-state electricity system rather than the system we have now, which is actually made up of three large interconnections, the East, the West, and Texas. So if it were just one system, how would that actually change the integration of renewables on the grid? Yeah, so... I want to get into a little bit of nuance here. Of right. You don't actually have to have one total grid. They can be asynchronous with each other because we're using this HVDC technology. But I always think of it as one grid because that's what an effect you're accomplishing. Okay. Uh, but you don't have to get rid of the existing sort of grid structure, as it were. You just have to have a sort of an overlay on top that will facilitate, you know, the Eastern Interconnect talking to the Western Interconnect, which doesn't happen today. So if you can do that, what you find is you get a massive explosion of wind and solar power being produced because wind and solar power are variable generation that appear random to the layperson like me stood in the street. Wherever I am in the world, it seems pretty changeable, the weather. But actually, when you zoom out from that and you look at a bigger picture, there's patterns that emerge and there's very, very well understood physics behind it and so i call it chaotic because it's fully described it's just difficult to uh, predict long term in the future but Mm. there are patterns there and there are correlations there and traditionally it's been thought that the correlations are bad but actually if there's a correlation it means you can predict what's going to happen and if you can predict what's going to happen if you've got a computer that's smart enough and you give it enough knowledge it will be able to select sites where it can see the patterns faster than humans can and it can construct this grid that's put together that's like a symphony or an orchestra working together to make beautiful music rather than you know a five-year-old on a drum kit just smashing a few (laughs) a few drum pedals or whatever but you you have to plan it from the start with that in mind right to give you this blueprint and then the model will tell you how to build out towards that goal and the reason you want the blueprint first is that you want to be able to say with the model what's the least regret path because we don't know what's going to happen in 20 years in terms of technology. But there are a few things that we do know. One is we're on a bad path now and we haven't got a big clock and a clock in terms of time left to solve the problem. So we have to start with technologies we have today and we have to start building today. But we want to be on a path that allows us options to change course if we suddenly find we've done something wrong. And Things like a national market or a bigger market makes it easier to change course than small isolated markets because once you're sort of locked in, you can't really change. Once you've decided to only have solar panels on your roof and a battery, you've kind of locked yourself in because that's a huge investment at the beginning. Right. But if you do that and you're connected to the grid, if suddenly you know your battery goes out, you can still buy power from the grid as well. So I'm guessing that a single grid, whether it's a notional single grid or an an actual one, would allow you to integrate more renewables because of the fact that it's a larger balancing area, but you then you need some more transmission capacity. Yeah, so what what ends up happening is the the electricity, the fuel, if you will, is free, but it becomes complicated because the fuel moves about. You're like chasing your own tail, if you will. You have to build generation and it has to be static, but sometimes there's power there and sometimes there isn't. And the, the art is that you need to build them in, lots of multiple places scattered about a large area so that you can actually see the symphony playing and you can see that these things are correlated so a prime example if it's windy in seattle in a few days it'll probably be windy in montana 
and it's pretty regular. And so what's happening is, is that's a wave that's moving across. And because the model can see these patterns from all the data it has, it can say, well, I can extract some energy in Seattle for two days. And then two days later, I can extract it from Montana. And what it is able to do then is it can connect them with this transmission and it can only build it if it's economical. So if it's too expensive, it will never build it. And what you find is the remote source plus the local source plus the transmission is cheaper than all local or all remote. And so you have this confluence of this trade-off between remote generation and local generation. You get this curve that happens with the transmission that means that you have this trade-off and you can decide to have it all locally, but you end up paying more. Or you can decide to have it all remote and you end up paying more, but you have a trade-off if you have both. So what is the mechanism by which it would actually be cheaper to have partly remote, partly local versus all local? Well, the mechanism is that you've got the variability of the weather. Hmm. So if you had it all locally, you would end up having to back it up a significant portion, either through storage, which is kind of my idea of a backup is the traditional thing, or you have to have some fossil fuel generation, which then you have to burn a fuel and you have to have a lot of capacity of it because the, the highs and lows are bigger. Whereas if you have some local and some far away, you can build less transmission because you have some producing locally some of the time. But then you have the remote sources that can then be powered in to your location when the local sources disappear. And that means that you can then not have less reserves, you can have less storage needs and you can have less fossil fuel generation needs locally because you can ship the power about and the the idea is that the model then says well we need to build a network because a local source can become a remote source for somewhere else when you don't need it locally and so you can then have this interplay where you build a wind farm in colorado but some days it's being used in colorado because that's the cheapest thing to do but then other days you've got too much wind for colorado and it ships it to new york because new york really needs the wind and their wind has died down but you've got too much and then the next couple of days, suddenly California needs wind. You're, again, producing too much. So by having a network, you can then tap into multiple markets at the same time, rather than, say, a PPA, which is a power purchase agreement where you're selling to one customer all the time. And that's great to start with. But actually, if you think long term, you might go, well, actually, I want to sell into this market for a bit because their prices are starting to rise and I could make more money. And then as that happens as a social sort of market evolves then that would drive down prices in the long run because more people would start doing that or more actors would start doing that and selling into lots more markets right so you need that larger balancing area in order to smooth out the variability of the resource in different places and that would enable a larger market mm-hmm. but you need to have the transmission capacity hvdc i assume to yeah. make that work well the hvdc is the cheapest option for it to work so in the model, we don't impose the transmission has to be there. Sometimes I um, don't explain it very carefully to people is that the transmission is only picked if it needs it and if it's economically viable. So it could have been that we did this and it picked everything locally and it didn't need the transmission to go to distant areas. But what it found was by building the transmission, it actually reduced the costs for the whole grid. So locally and remotely. And so the grid is sort of a byproduct of this need to get cheaper energy. And the cheapest way to do that is to think about not just locally, but further away too. And the way I think about it sometimes is we could, here in Colorado, we could build cars in Colorado if we wanted to, and we could make our own Chevys or GMs or anything like that. But 
I would imagine they'd be more expensive than the ones built in Detroit because Detroit has all the technology and all the experts there. And so it makes more sense to buy them from Detroit and ship them here than it is to reinvent the wheel, if you will, back in your home state. And you could do that all over the country. And you know, commerce has worked that out many years ago and electricity needs to catch up with that. We need to produce electricity where it's most effective and valuable to the grid and ship it to the customers where they need it. That's an interesting analogy. And you know, I think a lot of grid power observers would agree that a national HVDC grid would be the best solution, not only to more renewable power integration, but to several other issues as well, like stabilizing market prices. But no one seems to think that it can actually be done as a practical matter, thanks to the resistance of various mid-continent states to running the lines over their turf, or at least not without some sort of fat compensation if they're willing to do it at all. And I realize your domain is more, you know, mathematics and modeling than U.S. state politics. But what is your view on the pragmatics of a comprehensive national HVDC network? Yeah, so I'm lucky enough to be a mathematician, so I'm very logical. Sometimes politics confuses me because I'm, maybe some people, certainly my wife thinks I'm hyperlogical sometimes and I'm not (laughs) as emotional as some people. But really, that's where the, the tire hits the ground, right? That's how we move forward. And so... The first question I wanted to answer with the model was, can we technically do it? If you can't technically do it, there's no point arguing politically we should do it, in my opinion. Um, But again, that's my logical brain on. (laughs) So I feel like we showed, and other people have showed, NREL have showed, and other studies have shown now that this is economically feasible. It is technically possible. Then you get to the stage of, well... Does the politics come into play? And, and yes, it does. I mean, we've done some recent studies where we do each state has a, a big hub. So each state will get access to the transmission system and therefore jobs and all the benefits that come with having access to the power rather than doing these long transmission lines across multiple states but don't do anything for the states other than having a transmission line run through their state. And uh, I feel that's a move in the direction of the model being built in a way that's trying to answer a more political question which is Mm. well i want this jobs and the economic boost locally and what i would argue back is that well different states have different resources and different strengths and we should connect them all together so that then just like the interstate highway did and so that each state can do what they're good at and contribute into this bigger picture together the bigger political things is we've got to cross the interconnects we've got to we've got to think about those sort of things and we've got to think about what's good for the consumers and so there's 2005 federal power act says that it has to be reasonable and just at the cost of electricity and if we're not thinking about the large scale the cost won't be reasonable and just because you're saying we have to build it here because we happen to be here rather than going well we could get it for half the price somewhere else that doesn't seem reasonable or just to me that's not a logical thing to do So you've got that side, but you've also got the other benefits of these generation being able to share power longer distances is some states where there's not very many people and a lot of open space, particularly the middle of the US, there's a lot of space and not many people. There are some, of course, there's always winners and losers. But if there's lots of space and not many people, but on the coast, there's lots of people and not much space, it makes sense to me to connect those two things because we can provide power for the people that don't have much space and provide benefits to the people that do have a lot of space by paying them for using their space that they're currently either not using or they're using it for farming, which they could be dual use for generation and and farming. Right. So you could actually use your model to say, what is the highest tolerable price for HVDC capacity? Mm -hmm. 
in order to enable all this other stuff. And then you could use that price to figure out what's the maximum price you could pay to states over which the HVDC line runs. Right, yeah. So you can you can essentially do the experiment, like you just said, you can say, well, we want an 80% carbon reduction, whatever the number uh, is chosen to be. And you can say, what is the maximum we can pay to have the cost of electricity be 10 cents a kilowatt hour? And therefore, you can then work out what the maximum credits could be or the payment could be for rights of way and things like that. So you can reverse the question from the traditional questions of yeah. let's minimize costs. What what you can say is maximize benefits, or you can also uh, sort of do a more nuanced thing as well on top of that, which is each state has to have X number of jobs or you know has to have this benefit or this other benefit. And how much extra does that cost the nation or how much cheaper is it for the nation compared to doing it all locally? Yeah. Or you might find that, you know, locally when you put all these other things in is, is better. And so the model doesn't, want a national system there isn't sort of this perverse power that has a preference it's right it just comes out with what's best or efficient and it turns out that hvdc network is the cheapest most efficient exactly and that's for every scenario we've run with any generator on the grid so that isn't just because of wind and solar oh really that happens even if you've got nuclear heavy or coal heavy Um, it still happens because of resource sharing and, and other things but the wind and solar is sort of force multiplied. It's an additional, uh, makes wind and solar much more effective. I see. The benefits aren't as big with just say, let's say just coal, but there is still a huge benefit for doing a national system regardless of the technology on the grid, even with storage. Okay. Um, This is kind of a side point, I guess, but I was sort of curious. In your production model for your PV systems, do you happen to recall what kind of efficiency you're assuming for the PV modules? I do. I'm a mathematician. I remember a lot of numbers. <laughs> um, so uh, 17% is the efficiency. Okay, so that's very conservative Yes, we, for today's modules. Yeah, so we used 2007 like high-range models Yeah. Uh, when we started the project in 2011. So we okay. said, well, they've been around five years. Which is, you know, in, in the same ballpark as what NREL would use or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Okay. But in fact, we're now routinely deploying modules in the field that are 20% plus. I think SunPower, he actually has a triple junction module that's 24% mm-hmm. efficient now. Yeah. Okay. So what is your guess as to how that greater efficiency would change the results of your model? Like what, obviously there'd be more solar integrated into the system, but what would get pushed out? I don't know if more solar would be installed necessarily. I think it probably would. When I doubled the efficiency to 34%, all that ended up happening really on the margin was less space was used for solar rather than more solar was really put onto the grid. Yeah, because you get this solar deflation, devaluation happening ah. where you put the, the solar in and you've used up your space. But if you double the efficiency, all you're really saying is you can have the same amount of power for less space. But if you put more power in that same location, all you're going to end up doing is having more curtailment at certain times of the year. So, Well, that's very handy because I wanted to talk next about value deflation. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so looking at this value deflation question as a consequence of one of the studies you've done here, you know, the, the more wind and solar you have on the grid, the lower price it fetches. That's mm-hmm. the, the basic idea. Yep. Uh, because it's bidding a zero marginal cost resource, a production cost resource into an increasingly saturated market. Yep. And I discussed that question at some length with Ben Paulus in episode three of this podcast. And I, 
I think we both agreed at that time that the likely fix to the problem would be some sort of a regulatory intervention or a market adjustment to prevent the price of wind and solar power from falling too low. But I wonder if you know your work with this model would produce a different view of that issue. Yeah, so we looked at this because we kept getting 17% solar over a national grid, and that kept coming out pretty regularly when there's not storage. And it would just be purely coincidence rather that you'd wind up with a 17% mix for a 17% efficient module. Yes, because when we doubled the efficiency, it was still 17%. Okay. So (laughs) it's it's to do with the size. When we added Canada and Mexico, you got a larger amount of of solar. So I take it it also didn't have anything to do with the capacity factor? No. No, okay. So it comes down to the amount of curtailment that's being produced and the cost of building the transmission and, and all the other generators that are, are coming into play. And and when we look at the, the market clearing prices from the model each hour, we find that the wind and solar don't bid in, in zero. So at the moment, they can bid in zero because, well, they've got the PTC and they, they don't have any variable costs and, and they know they're going to get some clearing price. But what we find is, well, the model eventually will have 70 80% carbon-free generation and sometimes 100% carbon-free generation being produced and so the market changes from just being a production cost to a capital and production cost market where it's charging for the fact that it's got capacity on the grid at the same time as the production cost so it's it has to make money to be able to pay for itself otherwise everyone would lose out because if all the bidders on the grid were saying zero no one makes any money right and that doesn't make any sense to the model it's it's a super logical being almost right yeah it doesn't think that's sensible and so it changes the market to care about paying for sort of fixed costs of being there plus then this additional okay so uh, your model would actually support the idea of some sort of a intervention into the market to establish a floor price or something i don't know if it says it's a floor price what it does is each generator has a different fixed cost when you're looking at variable generation because has different capacity factors right and so what we found was the levelized cost of wind that the model picked was between one and a half cents and 15 cents. And so the 15 cents one clearly would always be bidding in higher than the rest. And it would only get picked at certain times in the year or when the power is most expensive. But the other models would be doing the same thing. They would, it it really is a market they're fighting out. And the, the way they do it is the model, unfortunately does have the knowledge of what the other bidders are doing. And so it can work it out more more accurately than the blind bidders. But I mean, mm. you know, there is history in the market. They know what people are going to be doing. And what you see is that low penetrations, they all bid in at zero because they go, well, I want to get picked. And I know there's other generators that have fuel costs. Right. But then when you get past the level of capacity factor in terms of generation from variable sources, it then switches over to being more smart because now you're competing the majority of the time against other variable generators. And so, therefore, you must fight it out in terms of real costs rather than just the production cost. Interesting. So your wind and solar then would actually start getting a price that was actually set by a fossil fuel generator. Yes. Yeah. It would basically change to a situation where they pushed out enough of the fossil fuels as they exist to then have to act more like a fossil fuel generator in terms of the market because they need to be able to pay for their rent and they have to pay for their operations and maintenance all as once but overall that would be cheaper because you know there's less costs associated with it and okay. as you drive forward the cost of the new generators is even cheaper yeah 
But what what about when you get to like an 80, 90% renewables situation there? I mean, what's actually what's actually determining the marginal price? So then the market evolves again further into time of day pricing. So the the, the solar becomes more valuable during the day, obviously, because it happens to generate electricity in the middle of the day. And it wouldn't have a lot of value at night. Yeah, yeah. Well, quite. I, uh, I've tr- I've tried my best to get my engineer friends to work <laughs> out how to get solar at night, but it's well, CSP can do it. Yeah, but, CSP yeah. can do it. But because it's competing against the wind, which sort of dies away, it has a natural added value during the day and energy is seen as more valuable by the model during the day because there's more of it. So there's more need for it. So it doesn't overcompensate, but it compensates them more because it knows it can't generate at night. And so you get these fluctuations in price. And so what you can do with the model, you can actually extract that out and you can see the price changes during the day up and down Hmm. uh, in each of these nodes. Um, And you can see as time evolves, uh, the price generally goes downwards because they're not having to compete against the fossil fuels, which have the fuel at the added fuel cost in right. there as well. Um, and then there's on top of that, there's the transmission market because there would have to be an extra market for bids to go and ship your power to different regions because they have to be paid for as well. Right. So basically, your model would never allow the situation that we actually have today, where prices go negative. Uh, yes, prices do go negative sometimes if you include a PTC. Okay. Because. To drive out other competitors, the higher capacity factor wind will be able to drive their price negative more than a lower capacity factor wind and to make sure that those generators are selected over Right, but, but over long term... But X incentives, it wouldn't. No. Okay. The only time it thinks of negative pricing is when it does demand management and it would reduce the demand and that would be cheaper than going to negative pricing. Well, that actually makes a lot of sense. I think perhaps we could learn something from this model with our... <laughs> Our whole question about value deflation. Well, th- that's the hope, but it's a, uh, <laughs> it's a, uh, again, it's a model, and so you know. Well, obviously, there's no guarantee that just because we have knowledge that we'll yeah. have learning. Well, exactly. I like to yeah. say I'm a super, super rational person, <laughs> so that's what I say to myself. I go, well, all the science is telling us this. We should do why. Yeah. Sometimes things happen, and you go, that makes absolutely no sense <laughs> because they've gone on a completely different direction, mm-hmm. uh, which is driven by something completely devoid of logic. It's, yeah. it's driven by either politics or right. you know, internal dialogues and things like that. So, uh, but but it's out there, and it's sort of it's it's a possible path. And the way I think of the model is, it's just is a way of illuminating different paths that we can go down, and let the politicians fight out which one we want to pick and which or which blend we want to pick and 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 what costs and benefits there are because every single choice we make if we want to create energy will have both benefits and negatives yep and there will be somebody on the end of that equation who's either going to gain or lose exactly yeah and the model is designed to benefit the most but of course if the people that don't benefit are more powerful than the ones that do benefit then that makes it more difficult for it to yeah. to happen but i want people out there to be able to see what you could do if you had a fully optimal mm-hmm. configuration mm-hmm. we know we might not get to that fully optimal but if we if we aim for that goal and we miss it that's much better than just going oh it's too hard let's give up and right and burn the planet with you know, <laughs> tires and whatever else you want to burn. <laughs> Mate, your beer is empty. Yeah, we're gonna have to. Empty. We're gonna have to crack this situation right now. <laughs> ah, there we go. Now we've got fresh beers. Yeah, cheers, mate. Cheers. Sweet. Beautiful. All right. Well, with the uh, 
value deflation question put to bed. Um, <laughs> what other kinds of questions might we want to interrogate with the news simulator at this point? There's, uh, in my mind, quite a few. The first one would be ever-increasing sizes of grids. You know, I, I'm an academic at heart, a frustrated academic in some respects from working in a national lab, but these really hypothetical things of, could you do a global national grid? Uh, a global grid that's optimized globally, but also keeps the constraints of each of the national grids secure. Is there a way to do that? So like national markets, but yeah. uh, physically connected globally. Physically, physically connected globally that you could tap into other markets and buy power from. Right. And people say, I've <laughs> had uh, some people say to me, well, that's crazy. You wouldn't be able to transmit the power fast enough. And I'm like, well, electricity travels at about 10% the speed of light. So no matter where you are on the planet, it's not very long until you can get electricity from one side to the other. So that's just like the wacky thing of, well, how far can this area growth go? Can yeah. you really go? Well, I mean, certainly you're, you're familiar with the Desert Tech proposal yeah. where they're going to use Northern Africa to connect to Europe, basically, and provide a, a larger grid there. Yep. There's another proposal that's underway, I think, actually, to do a North Sea grid, mm-hmm. yeah, connecting a whole bunch of those. Yeah, a whole bunch of the countries out there in the, in the North Sea. Are, Brexit has caused an issue with that. but Yeah, um, a little bit. We'll, we won't discuss that <laughs> today. <laughs> so so just like the wacky questions that you know I know aren't realistic, but just to see if there's some trade-off at some very large scale where you know this really isn't useful to try and give us some more understanding about the interplay of weather and mm. these really, really large scales and yeah. how that uh, might impact it. A more realistic thing is taking markets and understanding that they're not perfect and seeing what happens when you blind the model to certain things. So the model as it's run now has perfect knowledge all the way out to 2050 of what the weather's going to do and what the load might do before you do any demand management on it and things like that. And there are things that it doesn't know. But if you said to it, okay, well, now I want you to plan the system instead of you know, out to 2050 having full knowledge, I'm going to make you blind every five years. So you can only see five years ahead. And the reason I want to do that is that's how grids are planned today. Hmm. They do a five-year study, right. most a 10-year study, right? and then they march forward. And, and my question is, how much does that hinder progress if you do that sort of study where you say, I'm going to look five years and then I'm going to reassess after five years and then do the next five years and so on versus going to your end point and saying, this is what we need to get to and then work backwards to today. Right. See how that differs and why that differs. To me, wanting to know the truth about things, how that would change and how different it would be versus between those two different scenarios so that we can really understand what's going on because these systems are so big and so complicated that I don't think anyone person can sit there and go i know exactly how all this works if we did there would never be a blackout there'd never be debates about what's going on but i don't think people do because there's no easy way and the way a mathematician would say there's no easy way to trace from a to b yeah there's no mapping function that's really easy to see right and we're doing our best and there's really clever people building the grid and you know lights stay on pretty much all the time and they've done a really good job of fooling us all into thinking it's easy like we flick a light switch on, we don't have to tell anyone we're doing it. It's just there as soon as we need it. And the, the sort of the change we're having to do is exposing the fact that it's a bit more fragile than we thought. We can use it as an opportunity to to be better at our planning of this whole thing. 
And that's one thing. And some other things that we can look at is we can look at the value added to the grid. Uh, we could also look at the value of weather forecasting versus mm. the grid. Uh, we can also use it to help other nations around the world develop their grids and maybe leapfrog fossil fuels like they did with telecommunications. They went straight to mobiles, how that would happen uh, and leapfrog it and, and really help. And, and every country has very different politics and has very different needs and wants. And so to be able to do something that's plug and play that people can use and, and use in their own country and have their own expertise in it is um, something I really want to be able to do with the model. And then a sort of uh, an aside to that is you can think of it from people who want to buy wind plants and develop them and put them in or solar plants or gas or coal or whatever they want to do. They can use this sort of modeling idea to arbitrage against different options. So they can use the model to say, well... A national grid's never going to happen, but just in case it does, I need to think about it because I don't want my 25-year asset to be not usable after 10 years because that's not good for my stakeholders. Right. So put these in these models and look at the different things of how an individual generator might decide to develop a project or not. And mm. maybe they have to move to a slightly different location to when they where they originally wanted and they have to negotiate a better deal, but they can use quantitative analysis from the model to say, this is why we think you should pay us a bit more money uh, or just compete directly in the market. Right. I mean, I have to think that for project developers, this would be a very handy thing to have just to prove out the potential of some of their prospects. Well, this is the thing. So I did a project with MISO that looked at their sort of long-term vision of planning. So they're, they're what I would call an early adopter Hmm. in terms of the idea and the, the thing and, and hopefully their success will will breed success but from the developer's standpoint they they could latch onto that and think about places that you know everyone's thinking a certain way and so if if you can then suddenly build a competition where they start thinking a different way and they start building places where maybe in the first few years they make a bit less than they would have done otherwise but for the next 22 and a half years they're making way more because hmm. of of these things that's really going to be helpful to drive it forward because then suddenly the developers are pushing for more transmission and more diversity of resource because they want to be able to sell their product further afield than their balancing area or their right. their local area. And it allows them to see places that maybe, you know, the market's really saturated in some areas for wind because they've, all the low-hanging fruit, if you will, is gone. And they're now having to go to worse and worse locations. Right. They're eating their own lunch because they're all doing the same thing. And now they've got the possibility of using a model where it could say, actually, you're trying to go to the wrong place. If you went over here, you could make an extra $4 billion over 20 years. And, you know, of course, the first few people who do that or the first few companies that might do that are taking a risk because it, you know, it's a model. But if they make money, that will become very quickly entrenched in, in their mm. business model of how to decide where to place it. And... I think they, they would be able to really see potential. And, and I don't just mean wind. I, wind is an example because it's the oldest technology in terms of these new newer technologies. But storage, for example, is where would you place the storage to be yeah, yeah, yeah. most cost-effective uh, right. to make the most money? And some people say, we'll put it with the wind generators or the solar generators so that you can have 24-hour power. Some people say in the residential properties or the commercial properties at the load centers. You could put it near the transmission line so you could utilize the lines more or you could have it as sort of a backup for if the transmission line goes down. You know, thinking about the N minus one constraints, maybe instead of having an N minus one constraint, you can have transmission with storage. 
mm-hmm. and you can run the storage for multiple hours that would be generated from the transmission line if it goes down and things like that. That raises a question I had never really thought about, which is the advantage of having storage associated or located with the generator versus located with the load. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so the, the model does all of those. This yeah. is why I bring them up. Is Sometimes it's better to have it with the generation and it sort of smooths out uh, fronts moving through and things like that. The, right. the power goes down only for a few hours. Sometimes it puts it with the actual loads side. So they, you know, if the transmission line's predicted to be really congested for a couple of hours, they can relieve that congestion by basically saying, we don't need the power, we can just take it from storage. And then it does it with the transmission lines as well. It has, sometimes it places storage on both ends of the transmission line. And it does that because it doesn't want to build the transmission line bigger than it has. And so at night when it's not needed, it will pump extra power to the resource side where the transmission hub is so that in day during the day it can send power and divert it somewhere else and then use the storage for that extra sort of quote-unquote peaking mm. power that's, that's needed. And that reduces your capital investment needed for the transmission because you then don't need as big a line because you're only using it maybe 100 or 1,000 hours a year for that very high peaks. And you can yeah. use storage to do that yourself or you can use cheaper resources at different times to send the power and hold it in storage for a few hours. To that is another interesting question I'd never really thought about until now is the importance of the capacity factor of a transmission line. Yeah, so we dubbed the term, well, I don't think I dubbed it, I think other people used it, but I call it utilization versus capacity factor. Right. Just to signify that it's different to a capacity factor. The utilization factor. rate. But but capacity factor is how I think of it, is you need to be in bounds, right? If you, I can't believe you would have any existing people that would say, I want to build this transmission line and I want to have it at 100% capacity factor or mm. utilization rate because mm-hmm. that's significant risk if that goes away. Yeah. And, and so you want to have some number that's lower than that, but you want to have it enough to be able to pay and be cheap to use and things like that. So the, the Because you're not going to build a transmission line that's only used 1% of the yeah, time. Exactly. Yeah. So the thought of immediately tells you that. And then the model keeps coming out with 30 to 45% is sort of the number that really? it likes. That's quite a bit lower than I would have guessed. Uh, yeah, it's lower than I would have guessed too, but it allows sort of the constraint of then you chop another line and you can use that line to send double the power down and things like that. So you can, mm. you can use them as sort of backup as well as the other things. But it pays for those lines and those lines. So if you were to do a national grid type thing, it would cost about 10 cents a kilowatt hour on average across the whole US and 0.4 cents of that would be the new transmission, HVDC transmission. So... Is a very low that is low percentage because I think the standard metric for the the cost of wheeling power over a fairly long distance is more like two cents a kilowatt hour. Right, and that's when you go from A to B and you just yeah. dump on one particular grid. Yeah. Whereas this is much lower because you get resource sharing essentially. What you would uh, yeah. get with going to bigger balancing areas, which is what they found in the east, is you get to resource share. When you do a grid structure rather than an A to B sort of structure where you're just pumping power like they do in China from the wind resource straight to the, the sort of load centers because it's got nowhere else to go. It's just, you've got one customer or very few customers that are drawing power off. And so you have to charge a higher rate because they're the only people you can sell to. Whereas with others, you can you can use your line much more effectively because you can, you're not sending it from one small discrete location to another. So when you're not generating in one location, you're not using a line at all. Right. And then when you're using it 100%, you can't send any more. With this, suddenly, with a network situation, you can be siphoning the power in lots of different routes around the 
the grid. So you can be using the lines much more effectively than you would be A to B. And so that's why the grid structure keeps emerging from the model because you can uh -huh. uh, reroute the power in lots of different ways. Uh -huh. Interesting. You know, that raises an interesting question for me. It was what's the economic limit to making an HVDC line work? Like at what distance would your losses be so great that it doesn't make sense to to pay for the use of that line? Or, or maybe put another way, how do you model the losses that you get on an HVDC line? So this is this is what again another reason why the grid structure comes out because what you don't ever really see is the model wanting to build lines that go from LA to DC or New York. Right. Uh, it does it in stages, and each of those lines is relatively short. Not short, but they're not the whole width of the US, for example. Right. Right. And so what you end up happening is you you see more of a shunting behavior where you send power from say. Uh, Los Angeles to say Phoenix, Arizona, and then some generation is dropped off there to provide power locally, and then some more power is put onto the grid to go to Colorado, and then so you see this sort of wave pattern happening back and forth across the country, rather mm. than being a direct right. uh, linkage. And we use between half a percent and one percent per hundred miles for the HVDC, losses. and then for the AC, it's between one and two percent for losses per hundred miles. Okay. But it varies because it varies on how hot it is. So the hotter it is, the higher the loss rates. Okay, so at 10,000 miles, you've got 100% loss. Yes. And so... But that's assuming you start at point A. That would be A to B. 10,000 miles and then yeah. drop at B. Yeah, you yeah. have no power left. Right. But... So what? if you had to go from LA to New York... Yeah, you'd lose about 30%. About 30%, right? yeah. Yeah, roughly. Okay. 15 to 30%, depending on which technology and the temperature and things like that. Yeah. Which really isn't too bad now that I think about it. No, it's not terrible. But the way the model works around that is it says, well, I don't want to go all that distance in one go. I shall sell it in more local markets. But that also presumes that you've got some generation at each one of those points along the way, right? Well, no, because say, use that example of going from LA to Arizona, you could have power coming from Wyoming down to Arizona and across. The model is smart in some sense of it. It knows what it would have to be generating where to send the power. So it doesn't have to be in Arizona. Arizona could literally just be a, a transmission hub for that particular power mm. to ship the power about. And vice versa, you can then turn it around and it could come from New York back to oh, okay. location. But if you track the electrons, which the model does, it tracks waves of electrons, you would see how much it's losing along the way. And so you can track the power that comes from one area to the other and see where it's going to. And what you see is it doesn't try to send it all the way across the country, generally speaking, which is why you see this when you look at the the maps from the model and stuff, you see this distribution across the whole US. There right. isn't. So, so you'd have this kind of hub sort of architecture. I mean, the, the same reason that, that airlines work the way they do. Yeah, same reason the interstate's the way it is, the same way the, the airlines and the same way the trains do. You need to have hubs for right. things to connect together and then move off to different directions. So it's yeah. the same reason why when you're flying from, say, Portland, Oregon to Seattle, you have to go through Phoenix. Yes. yes. Yeah, I mean, very sensible um, <laughs> economically, but very annoying as a, as a human uh, traveling on the plane. But what you also see is that's why you don't see these huge concentrations of, say, wind in North Dakota. So you don't cover North Dakota with wind. Right. Because it doesn't make sense economically to do that because they're all doing the same thing. And so having that huge batch of power in one place that's variable and trying to ship that to a single destination source doesn't work, which is why the Chinese model of 
sending all the wind from one region to another broke their grid and they had to split their grids up into multiple grids because of that HVDC linkage. Hmm. Because they're trying to force so much power yeah. into one region, which is variable, you can't do that. You need a network rather than a direct point-to-point thing. So I guess, once again, China is the first to discover the limits of things. I mean, they're doing a very good job of integrating but I mean, they've got other issues like, you know, their coal must take attitude and, and, and things like that. And Yeah, well, and also we've talked a bit on this show about the problems that they've had with the need for curtailing wind because they built all this generation capacity before they had the transmission capacity. Yeah. And, and that's what happened in Texas too, right? They they built all this generation and they didn't build the transmission and now they've built the transmission the curtailment's gone down. So Texas was at, I believe, 16% curtailment back in 2000 and maybe 10, 11, something like that. I can't remember the exact date, but it was it was very high. It was double digit curtailments, and now it's down low single digits hmm. because of all the transmission they built. Yeah, but they've had to build that afterwards rather than building them. Sort of thinking about them holistically, transmission and generation go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. That's right, because right. we don't actually have a market design that allows that. Yeah, we don't. Well, we don't allow us to transmit electricity through the ground because it's very very poor conductor and it kills all our cows so we don't want to do that but <laughs> but the, you, you gotta it was good enough for tesla yeah i know well i mean the the solution that they came up with uh, i remember reading a report i don't know what year it was back in the 80s where um they went well it's too dangerous to send it through the ground so we'll just send it through the ocean instead and so they were going to send it through the pacific ocean and then some people pointed out that I might kill a few fish and, <laughs> and ruin some other industries but <laughs> destroy the planetary food chain for example yeah well let's not worry about that too much but yeah so there's but like i say there's the way i always think of it is that you can't let the perfect get in the way of the good there's always everything we do unless we shoot ourselves in the head today and get it over with is there's always going to be some impacts that we have on the environment if we're trying to do economy and we're trying to do energy production and things like that and the model is all it's trying to do is find the cheapest cost with the least impacts that it can have right and even though a lot of people don't like transmission, I don't particularly like transmission, but it's a necessity. The model isn't picking it because I've said, hey, we need all this transmission. What it's saying is you need this transmission, full stop, to be cost effective. If you don't have this, you will drive prices up and you'll emit more carbon, which to me, kind of as being a logical person, kind of is is a dumb way of thinking. If, if everything's telling you you should do X to make things cheaper and to produce less carbon, don't do Y. Like, don't drive prices up and produce more carbon. If if it had said, go bigger to reduce carbon, but it's going to cost you more money, I think more people would believe it. And they go, oh, okay, that makes sense. But what it's actually saying is you go bigger and you produce less carbon and it's cheaper. And that's enabled by HVDC transmission and a smarter grid planning. It isn't just the HVDC itself. It's thinking about it in a, a holistic way with the grid and saying, we know we don't like transmission, but we have to have it to move electrons mm, about. Mm. And it has an environmental impact and it has all sorts of impacts, but we know that the carbon we're emitting has a big carbon impact. And I'm a, a strong believer in that changing human beings is a lot harder than changing the technology. Amen to that. <laughs> Amen to that. So, yeah, it's really just another instance of go big or go home, I suppose. Build it on, they will come, I think is the, uh, <laughs> is the key here. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, go big or go home. All right, so now that you brought up climate, you know, I'm really curious how this weather data embedded in your news simulator can inform the deployment of renewable energy systems and whether climate change is really properly being taken into account in our plans for deploying wind and solar systems. I mean, I think we have reasonably good data on the solar insulation or the wind resource, 
in a particular place on a historical basis. But are we taking into account how those resources might change in the future as climate change proceeds? So, for example, I know from my solar PV designing days that you have to have the voltage on a string of solar modules within the right parameters for the inverter you're using. But you only have historical data to figure that out. So the data will tell you what the record low and high temperatures are in that place and what the average temperatures are, and you have to work within that. So what if, as we continue to warm up, we find that all of our solar systems out there are putting out less power than we expected because they're derating under higher temperatures? Or what if we discover that, as I think many weather watchers now understand, that the shape of the jet stream has changed in recent years and and might still be changing. So if it had been in its usual pattern, for example, Superstorm Sandy probably wouldn't have hit the East Coast. So what if we're erecting all these wind turbines in the Midwest only to discover that the wind itself is moving elsewhere as a result of climate change? Well, there's two parts to that. That's a big question. and uh, Yeah, it took me a long time to say it too. Sorry about that. I know, that's great questions. And I'm pretty sure I can solve it all by myself. I know it. I'm not, I'm not Donald. <laughs> uh, um, I think there's a lot of people working on this. So to break it apart a little bit, first is we don't know exactly what the climate is going to be other than it's going to be different to today. That's known. It is going to be different. One thing I said at a meeting I had just recently with NREL was, how do you pick a typical year? when there is no such thing anymore. It's always changing. Yeah, what's Um, typical? Yeah, so the way I answer that is this is one of the reasons why wind and solar is helpful because they're small, discrete modules. And by the time, let's say, um, let's say the model is right and it says that we can build this national system and the wind and solar in place. It would take to 2030 to finish building it. And by the time we get there, the ones that have been erected this year or... 10 years ago are now needing to be either replaced or maintained or anything like that. And the question you need to ask at that point is, well, do we do the traditional thing of just revamping it and putting it in exactly the same place or can we move it? And the the beauty of wind and solar is that they're small enough that you can relocate some of them. Maybe you say, okay, half of them stay where they are and we need to put half of them in Northern Canada because now it's warm enough that, that the wind can be generated there. Or something like that. So a simple example, but it's sort of a there will be a rolling inventory all the time of generators that need to come offline, and we will have to adapt by placing them into new locations. And so the model that I've built will allow you know, climate model data to be put into it. So far, no one has done a study on climate predictions. All the studies I've seen for looking at grid optimization and things like that use historical data. Because it's very clear what the historical data is. The future is there's error bars that are from the floor to the ceiling that you know, anything can happen in the future. And so they want to use historical data because we know what happened and we know what the electricity demand was so we can pair those things together. I think we're very poor at the moment on what the climate impacts are in terms of how quickly things will change and, and how it will help. And to me, a distributed grid that the model keeps coming out with is in some ways better, safer, and least regret solution because you're spreading your risk out over a much larger geography. And one of the reasons it does that is it has 10 years of historical data. So it has the trends in it of climate change over the last decade. It knows that there has been changes that have been happening. So that's one thing. And it also knows about the hurricanes that go up the East Coast, which I believe, even though I haven't done the analysis yet, I believe is one of the reasons why 
there isn't as much offshore as people might sometimes believe. One is cost, but the other is I think there are these huge storms that come past that that can do uh, serious damage. damage. But that is just a supposition of me before looking at all the data, and it could be completely wrong and likely is. Uh, it's probably just cost um but but the point is that there's things that are changing that we don't know about and we haven't done as a society detailed studies about what would happen with our grids in the future with future predictions of energy and and maybe there's people out there that hopefully will put comments to your post and things that i'm completely wrong on that and there's lots of studies on it but i haven't seen many studies on it the second part to that is by building these types of generators, we will affect, or is it affect? We've, we will change the future. Um, I'm a mathematician, leave me alone. I'm, <laughs> I'm not an English major. We will change the atmosphere by having these generators. Yeah. And we don't know exactly how that's going to change. And that might change the power we're removing from the atmosphere. Okay, well, I do want to get to that question, yeah. but, but I want to return to this. So I absolutely take your point that there's a benefit in having distributed resources, distributed wind and solar, because you're spreading your risk. You've got smaller concentrations of risk, essentially, over a much wider area. But what about these utility-scale wind farms and solar farms that we're depending on as a part of this broader project of energy transition? Like, are we actually running a risk of stranded assets as climate change proceeds? So from the studies I've seen of the, the climate change over the Northern Hemisphere, by 2050, the winds won't change dramatically in the regions where we're trying to extract the energy from. Okay, so this generation and probably the next generation of turbines, no Should problem. be okay, yeah. yeah. And hopefully the scientists that are working on climate models and things like that will be able to give us better data at those times of, of what the future will be. But it's going to be a rolling inventory. I think the way I sort of envisage it is a... And again, this is why I like the network idea of the transmission is you don't need to exactly keep the generators in the same place they can move about, is that there's going to be a constant turnover and we're going to have to move it. We're going to become a society where we're moving generators, even though it's every 20 years, it's going to be a constant flux of generators moving about to keep up with demand and adding new generators too. And it's easier to do that with smaller generators than it is with big power plants that are designed to last 60 to 100 years and things like that they they last much less time but there's uncertainty with everything because so, so are you are you saying that sort of the wind farms of today and let's say iowa might wind up in tennessee well it'd be nice if they ended up in tennessee <laughs> if they moved south and i could go and sit on the, the beach and things like that um <laughs> Obviously not in Tennessee, along the river. <laughs> but yeah, basically what I'm saying is that the, the generation where it is today, the resource map, if you will, may not be identical. I don't see a future where there's not going to be wind, for example. I, I think that's pretty certain that the winds are still going to exist. The terrain isn't going to change, which drives a lot of the low-level winds. But what will change is sort of the, the precipitation and, and things like that, which will change the, the dynamics a little bit. So what might happen is that, you know, you might have to move wind turbines further north or further to the east or further to the west, or they might have to go a bit higher to capture the same mm. uh, energy because the, the winds are changing slightly. And the solar radiance is a similar thing. If there's more clouds or less clouds, that will affect the outcome of, of where we're placing them. But the, the nice thing about wind and solar is we can change courses. I'm I'm very passionate about fusion reactors because I worked on them for a bit uh, in terms of studying the physics behind them and 
I kind of think wind, solar, and other technologies together are a bridge to something in the future that's going to be more sophisticated than we have now. But we don't have time to wait for something more sophisticated. We've got what we have. And the thing that I always come well, back I mean, to... I, as the old saw goes, uh, fusion is the power of the future and always will be. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I, I always joke with some of my uh, more geeky friends of... I studied plasma physics for my PhD for three years. And when I started, it was 20 years off. And when I finished, it was 25 years <laughs> off. And so I feel I've done my duty to put the science back five years <laughs> in my three years of study. But yeah, so so it's always off. But we have this clock that's working. And I always say that there are going to be mistakes made. And we're humans. We're going to make mistakes. But the beauty of wind and solar is if they're in the wrong place, it would cost money, but we could take them down. And there would be no lasting impact to the environment. We take them down and move them somewhere else, and it would yeah. be expensive. But if we take a coal plant down, we've already released the CO two; it's already gone. We've already burnt it; it's already in the atmosphere, and we can't get that back. Whereas with the wind turbine, we can take it down, and instantly the effects it's had are gone. And maybe the concrete foundation might be last a bit longer, but essentially we could move that whole rig somewhere else and, and re-erect it. And I, I feel that just just thinking sustainably in terms of so this broader picture of climate change isn't really the problem. It's a symptom of the way our society has been working for the last hundred odd years or whatever. Okay, it's so you don't really see climate change causing wind turbines and solar farms to become stranded assets mm -hmm. because it would happen slowly enough that we could actually just move the generators. Yeah. And then I suppose the same thing maybe to a lesser extent or at a higher cost would be true for the transmission lines that connect them. Yeah, well, the transmission lines, you see, the, the, the big HVDC sort of network that the model keeps envisioning wouldn't need to move. You just have to tap into that from a, a different location and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, you could upgrade the lines and things like that. But they've got a lot longer timescale and, that, and that's why... I believe the model doesn't depict these big one place to one place locations because it sees the variability and it sees that it's better to be able to arbitrage against change. And so a network does that by definition, right? If you are shipping power to New York one day, you want to be able to have the ability to go to Los Angeles another and you're arbitraging against New York suddenly disappearing. Mm. The model doesn't do that, but just the thought experiment of if New York disappeared, all that load disappears. Right. If you're just selling to that one place, that's a big risk. Yeah. Um, or vice versa, all your generation disappears. Maybe someone would want to use your transmission line to go another direction than you're currently going. So it's this, this idea of the model is trying to do its best to do a least regrets scenario where right. it's evolving all the time. And, and that's one of the things that as a modeler, I always am trying to wrap my head around is all these models that we build tell us this is what it should look like. But the grid isn't stationary. It's not a fixed thing. It's an evolving machine that's constantly changing. And you know, when you say this is what the grid will look like in 2050 or this is what it should look like in 2050, you know that's only going to last a year at most and then suddenly it's going to look different because it has to because the load profiles are changing, people's behaviors are changing, and the weather's changing. And so... Right. I always try my best to explain that you know it's a constantly changing, revolving system. And the one thing that we know is for sure is that we're going to need energy as long as humans are around because we like our refrigerated beer. We like our barbecue ribs. We like oh, yes, our we heating do. and cooling. We, we like a lot of things. And we also need a lot of things. There is, there's also things that we definitely need, especially 
Especially cold beer. Especially cold beer, yes. yes. I, I think that is the most important thing that the human civilization has given us. In fact, um, <laughs> I think we're looking a little low here. I think it's time for a refill. Cheers. Ah, cheers, yeah. There we go. More beer. Another Luponic Distortion from Firestone for you. Oh, thank you. And a Melvin IPA for me, just in case anybody's wondering what we're enjoying here. It's very tasty. It is very tasty. They're all very tasty. So you've actually done some interesting modeling on the effects of turbulence on wind turbines and how to situate the turbines within a wind farm for the greatest power output. Any interesting conclusions out of that study? Uh, no. <laughs> pretty pretty mundane and boring no um, i i mean a lot of other people have done a lot more work on this even though it's still a very nascent in my opinion thing but i i was always considering well we're putting these generation sources up and we're producing electricity from them so we're extracting energy somehow from the atmosphere and, you know, if there's not very many of them, you can just argue away, well, there's, there's not much of an effect. But when you start getting large amounts of them together, extracting energy, there must be some effect on what's going on in the atmosphere. And there must be some sort of feedback loop. If someone puts a wind turbine in front of my wind turbine, I'm pretty certain that I would feel an effect from that upstream wind turbine. And wind farms... I've known that, and some wind farms have even gone as far as to sue other wind farms to make sure they haven't got built upstream of them because they know they're going to lose revenue hmm. because of it. But essentially, what we find is that you're extracting energy, particularly wind, you're extracting energy from the atmosphere. You're extracting it from wind. And the physics behind it is fairly simple in some respects. Is you're taking kinetic energy out of the atmosphere. You're slowing the wind down, essentially. And nature does not like vacuums. You create a pressure gradient, essentially, and air will accelerate in to that gap and try and fill it. And by doing that, you're moving vertically and horizontally winds that were maybe, say, smoothly flowing before. You've altered it, and so you end up with all these weird currents that affect and turbulence gets kicked off. And now suddenly you're downstream of that, and you've got this, what they call the wake, coming downstream, and now the energy isn't propagating necessarily in the direction you need to extract the energy. Some of it's going vertically upwards, some of it's going perpendicular to where you are. And so you may end up with less energy or there just is less wind speed in total. So there's less energy because it's the cube of the, the wind speed. And so what I was interested in is, well, is there some way to take advantage of that rather than it being a disadvantage? We're humans and we like regularity. So we'll put one strip of wind turbines and then we'll put another strip directly behind it and then another strip because we like nice straight lines. And if there's a ridge line, we'll go along it and things like that. But is there a way to uh, configure those wind turbines where we can use that acceleration to our advantage? So nature will force an acceleration of wind speeds to fill the gap behind it. But if you stagger the heights maybe between the wind turbines, we can make that acceleration go through the next turbine or, or go near it to enhance the power output from the turbines downstream. Really? I um, mean, this is, I've not seen a wind farm actually designed this way. 
Is this something that anyone does? So, no. Uh, essentially, at the moment, what they do is they, my understanding of it, and this is loose, so everyone can feel free to correct me, but my understanding of it is essentially they do an optimization type procedure where they look at the cost of the land right. versus the power produced. Right. But they're all at the same height. That's essentially what they're doing is they're doing financial modeling mm-hmm. and they're assuming that each turbine has more or less the same wind resource coming at it at all points. No, well, they are a little bit more sophisticated than that. They say, well, if I'm 10 diameters away from my neighbor, then I will produce 0.8 oh, okay. power. But if I'm five, I'll produce 0.6 okay. and things like that. And so then they'll do a calculation. The financial calculation is, well, how much land do I have to buy or lease? versus how far away they are versus how much power I can produce. And so they come to an optimal, which is they kind of get them close enough together that they know they're losing power. But if they went further apart, they'd create more power, but they'd have to pay so much more money for the land and the the roads and stuff. Exactly. But what they don't do is, uh, as far as I'm aware, sophisticated modeling is to, well, what if we change the heights of these deliberately within a numerical weather prediction model to look at the flows that go through them so that we can see accelerations and we can see things or look at whether, you know, maybe we deliberately tilt the front row off the wind so that we're deliberately curtailing the front, if you will. So that the ones in order to provide it, a little more energy to the back. Yeah, so yeah. they can provide more energy to the ones down below or even deliberately tilt them so you're producing slightly less power, but the wake then goes away past the ones behind it. And so mm. you can you can sort of control it that way. They, there's no real, as far as I'm aware, sophistication in that sort of aspect, heights and and different things. And and certainly with the heights, you would get accelerations that would you could direct almost directly into the downstream turbines. Okay, so so what is the the actual difference in height that you would model an optimal wind farm would have? Well, this is the the difficulty is it depends where you are. It yeah. depends on what what you're wanting to do. And and it comes to that dichotomy of do we want to produce the most power or do we want to produce power that's available at the most salient times? So what I mean by that is... At the best price. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think any wind developer, if you said to them, well, what you can do is you can compete in the market and you'll only produce power at 2, 3, 4 p.m. in the afternoon and you won't produce power any other time. Is that better than having a wind generator that produces almost nothing during the day and lots at night? I mean, it's that sort of question. And... Or do you want one that's produced more power, but there's lots of you doing it and you're going to get curtailed and, and lose power? It depends on what the developer wants to do. So, And this is, comes back to modeling again is in terms of these wind generators essentially look at themselves in isolation to everyone else. And they say, how can I produce the most power? Maybe in a simplistic form, but not in consideration of, well... I've got a wind turbine 10 kilometers away that's going to be doing exactly the same as me. Maybe it's not a good idea to just think of myself because when I'm producing the most power, there probably are too. And so we're both competing against each other hmm. for very low energy or negative energy costs. That's right. not great. Right. So you can you can expand this idea instead of just doing linear programming that we do for the optimization, you can couple it with a weather model and say, well, this is what I think the configuration should be. Pass it to a weather model see what the wakes are, see what the configurations do in terms of power. So basically say, this is what you thought you got. This is what you actually got. Tough mm, luck. Mm. Go back to the optimization model and say, well, actually, if you did this, this is what would happen. What would happen if that's the power you got? And then reconfigure it and then do an iterative process back and forth. That would be much more 
helpful, if you will, to the to the models. So this is where we're getting Three into beers, the drunk man. history. Um, yeah, cheers. 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 Right. We're, we're, we're moving towards the, the bad stage <laughs> of the interview. You can do this sort of iteratively and you can find uh, nuances that you might not have found before. But the second component is you'd be providing better forecasts for all the other generators as well because the numerical weather prediction models need to know what's happening in the atmosphere. And at the moment, they don't incorporate wind or solar in them. They just do. And then you end up, well, if you're in a wake, the model doesn't have that information. And and so the forecasts are going to get more and more incorrect the more and more wind and solar we put in the grid because we're moving that energy somewhere else. So I think what you're saying then is if we were doing more discrete modeling on a per-turbine basis where you could actually model to some extent, the turbulence or the acceleration coming off the back of the turbine yeah. and figure out what's the height of the next turbine to really maximize its output, you'd actually wind up with a very different looking wind farm than we normally build today. Yeah, so some testing that I've done on my home computer when I've been very sad and lonely and, <laughs> and, and wanting to look at this stuff and, and interested in it is... You might make me cry right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, we can... Uh, you can actually end up with the same aerial footprint as in the same space that you're using, but end up with more power if you, instead of just had one turbine height, you staggered the heights. Hmm. You could stagger them in a way. And that's all you're doing. So that's a simple test was... So are we talking like 50 meters, 100 meters, or... Well, well, I allowed the model to go between 80 and 150 meters okay. to choose from. And I can't remember the exact yeah. configuration, but they were all different heights, essentially. Huh. At the exact same turbines on the top, it's just the towers were taller or shorter. Huh. And you could get more power out and the cost was better. Like When you looked at the levelized cost, it was much more affordable than, than having them all at the same heights. What I don't know is all the regulations from FAA and things like that, is whether they're allowed to do that or mm. things like that. But the other thing is that you then get less wakes coming off the back of this whole farm. So you've got the turbine level information, so per turbine within a farm, but then when you look at the bigger picture and you zoom out again, you've got then whole farms producing these big wakes going downstream. And how do they interact with other farms that are that are in the neighborhood? And if you do this staggering principle, you're deliberately mixing more layers of the atmosphere. And so you, you mix out the wakes faster than if you extract all this momentum at one level. Hmm. So you would actually have a lesser effect on the wind farm downstream if you had a farm that was staggered height turbines. yeah it appears that way and i mean yeah. I've, I've not done enough testing to be able to definitively say that and there's mm. lots of people starting to work on that question but i'm really interested in it because what i ultimately want to be able to do is build this coupled model where you've got the atmosphere and the grid together and sort of climate forcing as well coming in and seeing how you're moving energy about so we don't even we don't even know in weather models what the effect of all the power plants we have today has on the atmosphere the power plants, by definition, give off heat, right? And so they will have some impact on the atmosphere. But from the turbine-to-turbine -turbine interaction, that same analogy can be used for solar panels too, and they're doing the same thing with the radiance. Um, and that's not modeled at all anywhere that I've seen. Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. I, I've often wondered, you know, sort of from a climate change standpoint, how much heat are we actually putting into the atmosphere from all of our thermal power plants mm -hmm. And how much might that be contributing to the greenhouse gas effect or just the, the total warming effect? And, you know, if you look at it compared to the amount of heat that's being dropped on us by the sun every day, it's 
infinitesimal, right? It's, it, it hardly even matters, but or at least it's very marginal. But then again, we operate within a weather system that is sensitive at the margins, mm-hmm. and maybe maybe it does matter. So this brings us back to a question that we raised a little earlier, which is, is there a risk that we could actually start to exhaust the wind resource in some places if we deployed too many turbines? I mean, I, I think it, we, we would never deploy so much solar that we could actually diminish the solar resource because that's sort of not how it works. But with wind, maybe it could. Might we hit that point at some point? Or have you even tried to model where if that would actually happen? Yeah, I, I, well, I've, I've not personally looked at that particular question. I, I know researchers that have and show that, no, we can't. We can't exhaust the wind. We can't exhaust the wind resource because what ends up happening is the winds happen for a reason. Right, there's a reason why they're there, and if you stop them in some way or extract the momentum, that thing that they're trying to balance will still be there, and therefore some gradient will have to build up in the atmosphere to then drive either more powerful winds or winds going above the canopy and things like that. And and so there is a possibility that we will change what's going on, but I think we'd have to get to very very high amounts of wind before we do that but what i think is interesting is that everything turns into heat eventually and so you were saying the thermal power coming off the power plants but there's we're also depositing that electricity where we live and we get the urban heat island effect because of the buildings and things like that but we're adding heat because we're converting electricity into heat yeah um, you turn on your air conditioner and that thing is thrown off heat yeah well your fridge is doing it your computer's doing it your printer's doing it your tv's doing everything that uses electricity. Even your phone is doing it at yeah. a very small level. Well, unless it's a Samsung set. So <laughs> doing it at a very high level. But Samsung, you Could can dunk. Like, Samsung yeah. slam. <laughs> no. But, no, but I mean, <laughs> I felt my iPhone uh, at times when it gets very hot when you're using it extensively. The CPUs on your computers are giving off heat. So, so everything eventually is turned into heat. And the wind around us eventually is turned into heat by friction. That's how the wind stops. Because I, I always uh, used to ask my university students well where does the wind go like it blows past you but then where does it go and and eventually it stops right and why does it stop it's friction and it turns to heat blah blah so the reason i bring that up is that all the energy we burn in a fossil fuel plant is turned into heat and the fossil fuel is just a purely a, a heat deficit from the past we at some point some heat was captured by turning this into co2 and then being turned into uh, because the planet is a giant thermodynamic yes. engine and exactly. entropy is a bitch yeah it is a bitch and it'll come back and bite you but the point that i'm saying here is there's a lot of heat energy coming off from everything we're burning and we live in a small very thin layer close to the surface of the earth and we're pumping that full of extra heat and co2 and things like that and these wind turbines and solar plants even though i'm saying you're not going to get rid of them you will alter them and you will alter the patterns and and solar you say you can't depreciate the the resource i agree with that but think of it this way if if you took all the electricity we're producing today and deposited all that energy in the north pole would we still have an arctic frozen and the hmm. answer is categorically no. We would melt the North Pole. Hmm. So there's a lot of heat that we're producing from doing this. And so if we took all the solar panels and did a similar thing, we'd melt a lot of the ice because we're moving the heat from where it was directly put to somewhere else. And right. I don't know of any study that has looked at, and I'm hoping someone studies it and I hope I can be part of it because that's something I'm, I'm interested in, is 
what happens if we covered the desert southwest with solar panels? What would happen to weather patterns when yeah. we move all that heat somewhere else? What, yeah. what are we doing when we do that? Because it's not going to be absorbed by the ground. Yeah. It's then not going to be radiated back into space. Yeah. And it's going to be moved somewhere else and re-radiated somewhere else. Exactly. And so there's all these things that are happening that at the moment you say, okay, they're negligible because you know, I agree, they're negligible at the moment. There isn't enough doing it. But let's say Elon Musk is right and everything has to be solar and storage. Storage also produces a lot of heat, by the way, if you use it. What happens then? What changes are we doing to the atmosphere? And this is why I've always kept banging on to the NOAA people and people I work with is that you can't say they've got the weather and then the grid if you're going to run the grid from the weather. Mm-hmm. They're, the, they're the two things are the same. But they're interacting with each other and they they affect one another and they also tie into each other and everything we do in one will impact the other and vice versa so it will always have an interaction and we currently have no idea (laughs) what the future holds when we do this we just don't have the science done yet no but i caveat that with we know without almost absolute certainty that what we're doing now is wrong and so we need to change right, running this giant fleet of thermal power plants yeah, that is definitely wrong so <laughs> so the calculation i did the other month was let's say okay we're going to do nuclear and we're going to do nuclear for absolutely everything so we find some new technology that can make liquid fuels from nuclear we split the atom blah blah, blah. so everything's nuclear right so there's now no co2 right and we do that everywhere around the globe right so we'll ignore you know uranium mining and all that stuff yeah yeah the heat coming off all those plants to power everything would raise temperatures on the surface of the planet, two degrees Celsius. Just the thermal heat. So the heat really? off them, and then the heat given off by the locations where we are. And it'll get mixed out, and it'll be averaged out over the oceans and things like that. But we don't have the CO2 problem. But we're thermally limited because we're, we're releasing heat by doing this, right? And <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Wait a minute. So you're saying that we would we would hit the globally agreed limit of global warming, two degrees C, if we had a planet that was entirely powered by nuclear power. Yes. That's the rough calculation I've done. Obviously, there'll be nuance, so maybe it'll be 1.5 or 2.5. But That would just be the consequence of the waste heat. The amount of heat we're putting into the atmosphere yeah, by 2050, by producing all the energy. Ne- never mind. The, so a zero carbon resource. Yeah. Yes. That's why I got interested in wind and solar generation. That is amazing. Because it's the only thing where the net effect on long time periods is zero. Because you're moving the energy, but you're not creating new energy from burning a fuel. Nuclear is still burning a fuel. It just happens to be a very sophisticated way of burning it. But you're releasing heat. Sure you are. That's stored up in carbon bonds, or or not carbon bonds, but but bondage between atoms. Yeah. So you're releasing heat. And so, first of all, entropy is a bitch. So you're going to lose heat that way. But then when you you use the electricity, you're also re-emitting that heat. So all the energy you're releasing will be emitted into the atmosphere as heat. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. Exactly. So you you have created this heat that is now in the atmosphere. And if you look at all the projections of how much energy we're going to need, if you power everything by nuclear, if you just do that equation and you take it back to how much energy then heats the planet, it it comes out at roughly two degrees C. And and I've never heard this before. I was worried about it. And I I I haven't tried to publish or anything because I don't want to... Freak, sort of, freak everyone out. Well, it's not just freaking them out. It's just that, you know, I'm talking about everything. It's like everything we do is nuclear. And obviously right. you can't do that. It's a, right. th- it's a thought experiment. It's a theoretical, yeah. But the idea is, that, is to try and make myself understand and others understand is that 
you're releasing heat into the atmosphere that's been stored. Yeah. And, and wind is we're, we're, we're operating within the limits yeah. of a fundamental thermodynamic yeah. system exactly. that uh, we cannot escape. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, and so the, the wind and solar to me are the only true, true-ish solutions because you're not creating, the sun has already provided that energy to earth. Mm-hmm. And we're just changing its uses and where we're going to deploy. Right, it. exactly. That's all we're doing. We're not creating this sort of stored energy that we've luckily been able to tap into for the last hundred years. Okay, so in episode twenty-seven of this show, just a couple episodes ago, Marissa Humman talked about the advantages of mixed integer linear programming to figure out certain things about how to optimize a grid or an electricity market. Stuff like, for example, the most economically optimal approach to dispatching renewable generators or how to refine production cost models. And I know that you've got some pretty strong ideas about the advantages of linear programming to some other approaches as it concerns electricity system modeling. So maybe we could talk about that a little bit, like in terms, hopefully, non-mathematicians like me might understand. Yeah. So the first bit is really a little bit geeky. Linear programming is essentially you've got one processor that has this huge matrix or array of data that is looking on, and it goes through, and in, in the simplest algorithm called simplex, which I won't go into, but basically it goes row by row through this matrix and alters those to eventually give you a solution which is a minimum or a maximum, depending on what you're looking at. And it needs one big batch of memory to hold all that big array together in one place and it goes through it sequentially. There's no real good way of what we call decomposing that into smaller problems. And if you try and break it up, you lose some of the information. So some ways you can do it is say, for my example, you've got the national grid, you could split it down into states and do each state separately, but you're not getting the whole picture. And so it won't be optimal in terms of the whole picture. With mixed integer linear programming, you sort of change the game a little bit. You can actually do linear programming, the sub-problem, like the state problem, but you can do that for multiple things and you can use a mixed integer algorithm that can sort of parallelize that over multiple processes. The problem is that the mixed integer programming is at least an order of magnitude harder, so 10 times harder at least than the linear programming problem. And you have what something was called the, the gap, the integral gap. And so you never find the absolute optimal solution because you're looking for integers rather than real numbers and so if you're a mathematician listening what you will understand is that real numbers is a larger infinite than the integer numbers Um, and you can count the integer numbers and you can't count the real numbers and so there's some finite gap between one solution and the other and also you're not always guaranteed certain solutions and so what i always try and do is make things linear program because there's the most advanced algorithms to do it you can always transform into mixed integer whenever you want, if you so desire. But you always are guaranteed a global optimum. If you write it correctly, and a geek term as well, if you write correctly, I mean you make it convex. So the people that understand that will go, well done. Everyone else will go, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, whatever, um, dude. Then it can solve in polynomial time. So it will solve very, very quickly. Quote, unquote, very, very quickly, meaning before the end of the universe. Right. Whereas non-polynomial time, it could take, no one knows the answer. Right. And so if it goes non-polynomial, you might want to move to mixed integer because then it, you can add more processes to it and things like that. And there's some things that you can do in mixed integer more accurately because, you know, if there's one coal plant, there's one coal plant. There isn't 1.0007532 coal plants. So from that extent, there is discretization. 
and there's some things you can do in linear programming that sort of you can approximate those things. You can bound them enough that it, it does what you want it to. But the reason the integers are helpful in some degrees is you have things called unit commitment and security constrained unit commitment and unit dispatch. And mixed integer programming is kind of the fastest way to do it because you can throw as many processes as you wanted it to solve it. The problem is that it's a much harder problem and you have this gap that always occurs. It, you're guaranteed to get a gap. You you have to have a gap. And for the really geeky people, there's always a gap because you can prove mathematically that no matter how close you put two numbers, you can always fit another number in between them. And for the rest of you, you can just believe there's a gap. <laughs> and that's what I believe. As a mathematician, it's always frustrating because you always know it's wrong. Even if it was a perfect model, it has to be wrong from the outset. You can't get it right. Even if it's wrong by a really small amount. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that gap is normally not small because integers are quite far apart in terms of uh, numbers. But then the linear programming has the advantage of you know being the optimal, but then it has the, the disadvantage of, you know, it might say you've got 1.76 wind turbines, which clearly you, you cannot have. You either have two or you have one. You can't have 2.4 children either. No, you can't, but we, we like to think we could. Yeah. But you can do some tricks to uh, approximate it. And so you can do linear approximations to unit dispatch and, and commitment and things like that. But you can solve them really fast. But not, not only can you solve the linear programming fast, you're guaranteed an optimal, but you've also got multiple methods to do it. You could then move to, say, nonlinear programming, which would be sort of even more accurate for some things like alternating current transmission. But then you're never guaranteed a solution that's correct or optimal or anything like that. So you, then suddenly we're in the whole whole another world of hurt because you don't ever know whether you're solving it other than for a very small subset of things. And so it's just two different ways. So production cost modeling makes integers nicer in a way because traditionally you want to do the production cost regularly for the markets. You want to have it constantly happening. But you know that there's going to be some error built in. And you don't get the same picture that linear programming does. But the beauty of linear programming is you can look at this huge picture with quite fine granularity, but it takes a bit longer to solve because you, you only have one processor. And like I say, if uh, Marissa is out there and she can come up with a good parallelization for linear programming, let's talk and we can make a huge amount of money from IBM and people like that. <laughs> well, that might that might be super fun. I'm actually thinking it would be really fun just to get the two of you together with me over beers yeah. and tape another episode because, you know, we're all here in Boulder. And yeah, and she's incredibly smart. She she's so a lot smart. Of stuff, yeah. 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 You know, I, I don't have a background in mathematics, so I don't really understand everything that you just said. But I do have a bit of a background in computer science. Yeah. And what you're saying sounds to me a bit like the difference between a brute force approach and a parallel processing approach? Uh, to some degree, but mathematics helps you out, so it's not purely brute force. So brute force to me is what a genetic algorithm would be. So where you are literally evolving or mutating your system and trying lots of solutions until you get within some tolerable level of, of, of change. You say that's true. The linear programming approach is it takes this sort of messy, like, multi-dimensional space that has lots of vertices and crossing planes and it's trying to travel through that space to find the lowest point that it can find and there's lots of different algorithms to do that some of them go through the middle of that horrible messy hyperspace thing some of them go along the edges which is very pictorially done and if you've anyone studied any economics you have the supply and demand curves 
and optimization would literally you'd be on those two curves and you the simplex method would move along those two curves until they meet hmm. and that's your solution hmm. but now you have to imagine these variables have there's 500 million variables so instead of it being two curves there's 500 million and so suddenly you can see that that isn't two dimensions anymore that's a some horrible star trekky type thing going on but you you're moving through without having to look through every single solution you're moving through that space to a low so it's sort of a a, a sophisticated brute force method and the mixed integer is basically a simplification of that so that you can parallelize it so mm. the mixed integer is still doing that linear programming but on smaller subsets of the problem gotcha and so what ends up happening is you end up using more processing time and power because you get these big trees right that occur so you you try one solution on one processor and it keeps going until it either ends or it finds a solution mm. but at each level it has to talk to each other and say okay you've got a thousand processors and 999 of them are more expensive so we'll stop them and we'll all start from that one node that was the cheapest and then we'll do a thousand off that and then we'll keep going down this what's called a branch yeah. and cut which yeah, is yeah. most uh, so you, you just you just keep moving like that so in a way that's more brute force than the linear program and the linear yes. program to me is more elegant yeah okay you know they're both they're both called iterations they're both yeah trying to do the same thing yeah and ideally what i want to happen is google or nasa or somebody make that quantum computer because then this problem becomes very simple to solve mm. so hurry up quantum computing <laughs> yeah. as uh, an answer to energy transition yeah, if I could get my um, code onto a quantum computer, it would be solved in almost instantly. Wow. And, and any production cost problem or anything like that, because you can just look at all the solutions at the same time. Or, well, you can't, but the computer can, and pick yeah. the least entropy solution and done. Wow. I didn't get funded to do that, but it would have been cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would have been cool. Just to say I'm working on quantum computing for energy. Well, that's a really heady idea. So let's talk about, you know, some of these ideas that have been put out there of how we could actually do a fully wind and solar powered planet. Because, you know, if we're going to talk about a fully nuclear powered planet, we might as well talk about a fully renewably powered planet and exactly how that would work. And so one of the major proponents of those ideas, of course, is Mark Jacobson, who has talked about how the U.S. could have an economy totally powered by wind and solar. But I don't think he's actually gone into some of the modeling detail on the weather and the economic effects that you've done. And I wondered if you'd analyzed his concepts with your simulator, and if so, what you found. So, yeah, I'm fairly familiar with Mark's work. He's a a great guy and got some great vision. It's a wonderful thought experiment, in my opinion. It's a wonderful sort of conversation changer of, well, what would happen if we had 100%? So, to do some background, I looked at some 100% solutions with my model. And instead of it being 10 cents, it was between 16 cents and 35 cents a kilowatt hour. So between you know, 60% more expensive to 300% more expensive. Than his model showed. My model shows when you got 80%, so the cost optimal oh, I see. solution. So, so I went from the cost optimal, the base case, what's the cheapest solution to, I want you to get me 100%. What, what does that cost and yeah. why? Yeah. Uh, and so I did that. And so I, I read some of his papers, and I think I think were fantastic. And then, sort of, some components of it to me had a, as a modeler, kind of I could see why the conclusions were drawn that were were drawn. And so, 
I use 13 kilometers and three kilometers hourly data. Uh, he uses 250 kilometers by 220 kilometers or 150 kilometers by 150 kilometers tiles over the US. Okay, so you're using a much more discrete resolution. Yeah, so I, I can you know look at the topology of the US more accurately. I can, yeah. I can look at those things. And uh, unfortunately, he does a much coarser resolution. And I can see why he does that as a modeler because it's hard to get the data sure into the model but then he does something that's quite strange and looks at 30 second resolution and who looks at 30 second resolution i'm confused to how say a wind turbine that's 250 kilometers away from another wind turbine could be acting exactly the same every 30 seconds i i, I think that when you look at information travels if i shout from a rooftop extremely loud which i generally can and do regularly um, <laughs> it takes time TMI, man. Yeah, yeah it takes too long for that information to get to the other side of say where we are in boulder like the time it takes to get to the other side of boulder is some fraction of time yeah and winds and things don't move at the speed of sound they move a lot slower so to me there was kind of a discrepancy between the temporal resolution that was being used and the spatial resolution and that confused me a lot and then when I dug into it more, I mean, the the real chink in the armor, I guess, or the, the real vision, if you, if you believe what he's working on, is the extraordinary amount of storage that is used mm. uh, in the model, which is extremely cheap and extremely accessible, particularly thermal storage and things like that, that make the problem a lot easier. And of course, uh, I'm sure you know from your modeling work and, and other people know, if, if you make storage free or very, very cheap, then, of course, you can place your generators wherever you want them because you just store power when you're not using it and then use the power afterwards. And if you've got this huge, almost endless amount of storage, then really it doesn't matter where you place them. Right. You, you'll be able to produce power. And so so there's a couple of things that I, I just don't understand that there's been done. And um, hopefully I get to write about it more in the future and, and talk about it more. But Is that a threat or a promise? No, I know. It's just uh, I like writing about these things. I like finding the truth and like debating ideas and thinking about uh, different things. And I want the world to understand that everybody's model is wrong. Sure. uh, Including mine. And one of the reasons it's taken me five years to publish what I did was I wanted to get it as right as I could to be realistic whilst also coming up with new novel ideas rather than it being, you know, a thought experiment of, you know, as I alluded to earlier, I'd be really interested in using my model to look at a global system. I'm fairly confident that's not going to happen in my lifetime. I'm pretty sure there's enough countries that don't like each other that's never going to fly. Or that are 15,000 miles or more apart. Yeah, but it's a nice thought experiment. Like we're not going to run an HVDC line from Australia to Asia, probably. Well, you say that, but I mean, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe superconducting HVDC would be useful. Okay. Over those distances. I don't know. That, but, but I'm saying there are technologies that are way off in the future that may not ever happen at scale. But it's interesting to do those thought experiments of, well, what if that was to happen? And my experience of that work that I've read from Mark, and I've not read all his work. I mean, I really, really like the guy and enjoy beers with him. And I think he's got a really great vision. And, and I know where he's coming from. I know, I, I feel like him that we are going on a carbon path that's going to cause more damage than we can even imagine but i still care about it happening and i care about the truth i want people to understand that there isn't a silver bullet there isn't a solution that's easy and without problems everything we do has an impact and we 
we as humans need to accept that and understand that we're not going to have this utopian dream where everyone can farm their own food in their backyard and farm their power. You can say everyone's going to become a Buddhist. It doesn't make it true. Uh, it would be a great idea, but it's just not going to happen. What what we need to be able to do is come up with practical, forward-thinking ideas that we can all move towards. And what I love about Mark's stuff is that it's completely changed the conversation. I remember when I moved to the US in 2010, they were telling me that 20% wind and solar is a high amount of renewable generation. I don't think anybody who's who's working in this field would say that's high anymore. They would say that's pathetic. <laughs> for 2050 they're talking about 50 60 70 80 90% sure and that is largely down to people like mark and other people like dan cameron and ken caldera and, and lots of other people who are headstrong and working really hard on this problem and, and people like yourself as well and, and amory who are all working on this problem and from all, lots of different directions but we're all pointing in the same way stop burning fossil fuels and these are all the options you've got and pick one and he's i see as just another scientists as i am trying to educate the populace about there being other solutions and his is i feel much more thought experiment wise of you know if all these things fall into place you can have this and i'm more of this is what we've got this is what you can get if you do smarter thinking which i'm hoping is an easier thing to do than hope for that storage cost to fall to practically zero and right. hope that we can split the water molecules for practically zero and we can right. change all the aviation fleet to hydrogen and have another heisenberg yeah. type yeah. <laughs> so you know there's, there's this whole universe of options that we have available to us and what i find the most frustrating out of everything is that we don't seem to be moving fast enough even though we have so many options available to us and maybe that's just me because i'm you know a young annoying British person who wants everything yesterday and just am not politically savvy enough to realize that these things take time. Luckily, I have science on my time that we don't have time. We need to have this happen. And I hope by the time I die in approximately 283 years, um, <laughs> uh, this is solved. <laughs> I'm joking, by the way. It's only going to be like 180. <laughs> but yeah, so there's a clock against us and, and, and I think we need to move that direction. And I feel that people like Dan Cameron and, and Mark Jacobson and Ken Caldier and Nate Lewis and you know, the hundreds and thousands of, you know, not hundreds of thousands, maybe thousands of people that are working in this direction. We're all working for the same goal. We all believe that we need to work with the science that we've got, which is that the path we're on is devastating. Um, yeah. And we need to come up with a solution. We're all coming up with different solutions, but that doesn't mean we can't follow all of them to some degree and have the yeah and and there's absolutely a place in all of that work for some thought experiments to say oh, well yeah, you know way out here in this possible universe you could have that the ironic thing is i remember reading a science article from 1970s at some point that was talking about the saturation of wind energy and then right next to it and i don't know if someone would put it together on the internet or, or whatever but Maybe it was from a different article, but then maybe a few months later, there was a national HVDC grid for the US. And this was in the early 70s. And here we are. And they were thought experiments. Yeah. They were saying, if these technologies come by, we could do this. Right. They weren't saying, this is what we can do now. And, and, I, and I absolutely think that we need to have vision thinkers. I mean, 
cosmology you can never prove or disprove but i i like thinking about it yeah um, sure so you've got to have these four things but you have to have a funnel where you go from these sort of airy fairy thought experiments down to the engineering of actually putting uh, pylons in the ground and wind turbines into the ground and rooftop solar on people's houses and actually operating that grid and everything i've tried to do is to say that you shouldn't think at one end of the spectrum you should be looking at as much of the spectrum as you are able to do both intellectually and computationally because the more you can see of that spatial and temporal horizon the more knowledge you will gain if if the romans knew the technology we have now they would probably still be conquering the planet unfortunately well luckily for me because i'm from britain and we don't like invaders <laughs> they didn't have that technology and we were able to stave <laughs> them off so so it's just is this a progression of you, you want to be able to learn from history and also think disruptively as well i don't think we're going to get any better with this interview than that point i think i think we should probably just leave it there yeah thank you and i appreciated having time to chat with you Oh, it was so much fun. I yeah, totally enjoyed geeking out with you and, uh, you know, especially over a couple of decent pints. Yeah, it was lovely. Yeah. yeah. I really enjoyed the beers. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. That was Christopher Clack, a mathematician, physicist, and renewable energy expert, speaking with me in person at the Energy Transition Show World Headquarters, which is to say my house, here in Boulder, Colorado. I'd imagine that listeners probably share my surprise at some of the findings from Christopher's simulations. The idea that solar might only get to a 17% share of grid power without storage, for example, or that a nationwide network of HVDC transmission lines is always a feature of the cheapest solutions, no matter what kind of generators you're using. Not to mention the idea that just the waste heat from a fully nuclear-powered global energy system would be enough to melt the Arctic. Fascinating stuff. If and when he is able to develop an inexpensive form of his simulator that can be run on typical PCs and distributed far and wide, I'll be very interested to see what kinds of solutions people come up with, particularly the thousands of project developers out there who are trying to figure out where to site the next wind farm, solar projects, and transmission lines. I think the results could be fascinating and really transform our general understanding of where the grid might be headed. And I think the question of value deflation still deserves further scrutiny, and the news simulator seems to offer some useful insights on it. I was particularly intrigued by the finding that the price of wind and solar power might come to be set by fossil fuel generators, and that the negative pricing might disappear as the system settles into prices that reflect real costs. Finally, I'd like to hear from listeners on whether they are interested in hearing more about the mathematical stuff, like this debate about the advantages and disadvantages of mixed integer linear programming. It's all a bit over my head, to be honest, but I'd be game for hosting a discussion between mathematicians like Marissa and Christopher to really dive into the subject and see if there's interest in that. How much gold can you hold in an elephant's ear? When it's noon on the moon, then what time is it here? If you could count for a year, would you get to infinity or somewhere in that vicinity? When you choose how much postage to use when you know what's the chance it will snow when you bet and you end up in debt oh try as you may you just can't get away from mathematics we're getting some great feedback from listeners and so once again i'd like to acknowledge some of it several listeners have written in to say that they really appreciated the vigorous but respectful debate that i had with oliver morton in episode 26 on geoengineering 
For example, Ernesto Segura wrote to say that, quote, the difference in views being well portrayed in a logical and productive manner with respect and integrity was great to hear, so well exemplified. Some may be shocked to hear that this is what arguing should sound like. <laughs> so I guess there's an appetite for that sort of thing in this ever more polarized and echo chambered world of ours. Who knew? So thanks to all the listeners who offered feedback on that show. Listener Vivi from Germany writes that the flat rate model of electricity pricing that Marissa Hummann talked about in episode 27 is similar to the way that German utilities have done it for years, where your annual consumption for the coming year is estimated based on your consumption from the previous year, and a monthly bill is calculated in advance with a true-up payment either way at the end of the year. And apparently there's another flat rate billing model there where a customer can buy a certain amount of electricity for the year in advance and effectively bet whether their consumption will come in above or below that amount. This was news to me, so thanks Vivi for sharing that. Perhaps we'll do a show on various electricity billing strategies in the future and try to make it more interesting than that sounds. And Michael Small from Vancouver writes to say that, as a non-technical listener, I appreciate the fact that you go deep with your guests on many issues, but get them to explain themselves sufficiently that a non-geek can follow them. The care you put into writing the show notes gives the whole series tremendous archive value. It really is like taking a graduate seminar in energy transitions that is accessible at the listener's pace. Well, that's just music to my ears, Michael, and I'm really pleased to hear that folks like you are taking advantage of the show notes because they do take a good deal of work to produce. So thanks again to all of you listeners for sharing your thoughts, and although it's getting harder to do with the increased volume, I do still try to respond to your comments. Once again, you can offer your feedback on the show by using the comment form on the show page or by writing to chris at transitionshow.com. And if you'd like to help the show, drop a review on our iTunes page and tell your friends and colleagues about it. For a show this geeky, will depend heavily on word of mouth to be successful. So thanks for spreading the word. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The California Air Resources Board has announced a revised plan for investing $363 million generated by California's cap-and-trade program, which will support increased numbers of zero-emission, heavy-duty trucks and buses, and raise rebates for low- and zero-emission passenger vehicles. The new plan will also allocate $60 million to help people living in low-income areas of California with the worst air quality, replace their older and dirtier cars with the very cleanest currently available. I think it's a smart move for a number of reasons, not least in that it addresses the concern that rebates and other incentives for EVs amount to a cost shift from wealthier residents who can afford an EV to those who cannot, and leads to a more equitable way of helping all residents, regardless of income, to upgrade to EVs. Because, of course, that's what zero emission vehicles really means when it comes to personal vehicles. Item 2. According to Bloomberg Intelligence, four of the nuclear plants bidding in the May 2017 PJM auction may not be able to supply power cheaply enough to make the cut, raising the possibility that around 5.8 gigawatts of capacity may be forced to close. The pace at which we're closing these big generators is faster than I think anyone expected, and I don't think we really know yet if it's going to be a problem or not. But it doesn't appear that we're closing them in any measured or planned way, such that we're certain we can maintain a reliable and cost-effective system across an entire interconnection, as the transition from these big old centralized plants to distributed energy resources proceeds. And I do think that's a cause for concern. Because the alternative may be to give up on deregulated markets altogether and return to fully vertically integrated utilities. Gavin Bade has a very thoughtful recent article on that subject in Utility Dive, which is worth a read, and I'll link to both those articles in the show notes. Item 3. 
According to the International Renewable Energy Agency, IRENA, it's now cheaper for many households in Africa to get their power and light from tiny solar systems than it is to get it from diesel or kerosene. Of the estimated 600 million people living off-grid in Africa, about 10%, or 60 million of them, are now using off-grid clean energy to light their homes. The agency believes that ongoing innovation in the sector, including new business models and financing options, will drive the cost of power from renewable mini-grids down by an additional 60% over the next 20 years in Africa and across the world. The cost of solar home lighting systems, for example, now cost about $120 for a small-scale system in Kenya, 80% less than they did in 2010. Globally, investments in off-grid solar systems have grown 15 times over between 2012 and 2015, with $276 million spent on them in 2015. While none of this will surprise dedicated listeners of this show, it's exciting to see off-grid solar growing so rapidly and bringing cost-effective, clean power to millions of people for the very first time. And finally, item four. The UK's national grid has transmitted data across its electricity grid for the first time, creating the potential for using the power grid itself to enable demand response services by directly controlling appliances in homes and businesses to reduce the peaks in energy use and remove the need for large gas or nuclear power stations or expensive peaker plants. While highly distributed demand response via the so-called Internet of Things isn't a new concept by any means, and in fact, data transmission over portions of the distribution grid isn't new either. This is the first time that it has been enabled to cross an entire distribution grid without the use of smart meters, the internet, or some other communications infrastructure. Now, there are clearly two ways to read this. The optimistic take is that it could be a terrific innovation to enable widespread demand response, reduce the need for more capex on big centralized power grid assets, and lead to a more optimized, efficient, and lower cost grid for all. A more cynical take would be that it's a way for the utility to head off competition from customer-side resources like rooftop solar and behind-the-meter battery systems and retain full control of the electricity market. For now, I suppose we'll just have to wait and see how it pans out. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.